0: The best
1: my You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Uh, welcoming our dear friend Roy Scranton, who is no stranger to City Lights. Actually, we had the great honor of actually publishing his book, uh, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of Civilization, Uh, and very, very excited about his new novel, I Love, I Heart Oklahoma, which is published by our friends over at Soho Press, who do really amazing fiction, and uh, as well as crime fiction, and... uh, I Heart Oklahoma is a wild, very kaleidoscopic road trip through the kind of pathology of contemporary America. It's sort of possessed by the weight of its history, governed by a variety of crazy obsessions cars, guns, the actual American landscape, and the violence that's essentially at the heart of the American dream slash nightmare. And I, I think that, that Roy has done this incredible job of kind of capturing this not just a zeitgeist of the time, but, you know, also, um, you know, kind of the things that kind of drive us beneath the surface. So uh, he is also the author of the novel War Porn, and uh, also the books We're Doomed, Now What? and uh, Total Mobilization. Uh, He's also the co-editor of Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. Um, It's really a pleasure to have you back. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Peter. It's always it's so the first time I came here, um, I hitchhiked down to Eugene and then took the green tortoise bus the rest of the way uh, and and came in and it felt like I was making a pilgrimage to a sacred site, uh, which in some sense I was. Um, And uh, it's I've always just sort of find it a little bit hard to believe that this this bookstore is a real place and not just a myth um, of literature. Um, and was super excited when, when 20 years later, uh, they published my first book, Learning, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Um, so I'm really, really happy to be here tonight. Um, and, uh, I'm grateful for you all, uh, to you all for coming up. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read a bit from, uh, I Heart Oklahoma, my new novel. It's, um... It's a book about America and American narratives, um, about American narratives on the road and uh, and what it means, what that means, um, and the violence implicit in that and sometimes explicit. Um, it starts out um, <clears throat> as a story about three artists uh, from New York. One... Uh, video artist, uh, independently wealthy video artist um, who decides he's going to make a road movie about Trump's America. So he brings along, that's Jim, he brings along his videographer, Remy, and hires for this project uh, an artist, uh, a writer, I'm sorry, a writer named Susie. Um, As the novel progresses, uh, things sort of go sideways and and happen, and I'll talk more about that that later, but I'm just going to start reading from a section where, where Jim is... Uh, sort of pitching the project to Susie. He unfolded the map, spreading the country wide across the table. America. Broken by creases, Jim tried to flatten with his hand, scribbled over in tiny, coated ballpoint marginalia, random numbers, Greek letters, dollar signs, question marks, circles and triangles, roots highlighted in fluorescent coral pink and hazard orange. Susie drew her rye back from under the flap and retracted her hands, thinking, what the fuck? Then, seeing her look reflected in the liquid warp of Jim's silver aviators, composing herself and pulling her face together, breathing, telling herself, money in the bank. I found a 1971 Plymouth Valiant Scamp for only about $15,000, Jim said, holding the map down. It's this ecstatic lime green. Really great. Bench seats, column shifter, crank windows, AM, FM, 318-inch V8 cubic, uh, 318-inch cubic V8 engine, gigantic trunk. You gotta see it. You could cram a Girl Scout troop in that trunk. I also had AC installed and a swivel mount in the ceiling for a second camera so we can film constantly in addition to the handheld. We'll start out as soon as I get, the car, uh, get in the car on Monday, then I'll drive out to Brooklyn to pick you two up. Queens, actually, Susie said, but you don't need to come all the way out to Ridgewood. I'm sure we can take a train in, uh, save an hour or two getting out. I don't, it takes how long it takes. I want the whole Zoom, the sweep of urban decay, gentrification, and the BQE. I want Robert Moses, razor wire, and burning cars. Yeah, I, I can't really promise burning cars. I'll come get Remy in Crown Heights, then pick you up in Ridgewood, then we'll cross back over the Williamsburg Bridge to the Holland Tunnel. Why not just take the Verrazano? Look, I want certain shots. I want the Jersey marshes and the terminals, and I want the long shot of the south tip of the island. I want to cut that sea with found footage from the same angle. Old stuff, the towers, the absence, the empty sky, get it? Now you see me, now you don't. Then we're off into the great wide open. My rough plan is to stab into the heart of Trump country through Allentown and Harrisburg, riding 70 west more or less to St. Louis, then take 44 through Tulsa to Oklahoma City, 40 west to Albuquerque, where we'll hitch a sharp right north of I-25 through Denver all the way to Crow Agency, Montana, the site of the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Then we come back down through Salt Lake, Provo, Las Vegas, and finally Los Angeles. Google says it's about 4,200 miles, so if we spend at least five hours a day serious driving, maybe more, we could do, say, 350 miles a day, which is 12 days in the car, leaving us six for sightseeing and rest. Then we wind up on the beach with Neil Young. I have a friend who has some oceanfront property out near Point Conception. He says he knows a good place to drive a car off a cliff, which is probably illegal, Remy said. I don't mean go over with it. Block the gas pedal, light it on fire, slip it in a drive, and whoosh, there it goes. Most definitely illegal, Remy said. It's the closing shot. After I'm on the plane, okay, Susie said. I'm not interested in going to jail for felony littering. Jim laughed. Ha! A bark pushed out over the table like a fist. Okay, so that's the big picture. Anybody have any requests, diversions, ideas, places you'd like to go along the general route? You want the script to start in the city, Susie asked, by yourself, with us? You want some kind of Arthur Miller monologue get you going? Jim bit his tongue thoughtfully, looking creepy. Good question. No. Let's start on the turnpike. Something in name. That's how I do. Remy got up and moved the camera to take in a cross angle. Susie felt him go behind her, but she kept her eyes on the maple table, the gray walls, the faux-distressed pictures of Belgium, the map, You'd think she'd be used to cameras, but this felt different, closer to reality TV, an all-the-time thing. More reality, maybe, or less. She couldn't tell yet. Where possible, Jim said, leaning over the map, highways shining in his silver lenses. I'd like to take back roads, old two-lane highways. The interstate's great and fast and boring, but I want a little variety, especially out west. I want red canyons and blasting heat. I want white sand and rocket-blasted straightaways, old diners, a sign swinging, creaking in the wind, and forlorn waitresses. Ah, gee, let me check my little book of cliches, Susie said, picking up her rye. Remy huffed somewhere between a chortle and a snort, then came back around and sat down. Precisely, Jim said, all cliches, all about cliches. It's all about freedom and democracy and starting over and making a clean break and moving forward and making America great again. It's all fast cars and hot bitches and massive handguns. It's speed and death and sex. It's hitting the road and going west, Tom Joad and Jack Kerouac and the Beach Boys and John Wayne, James Dean, Lewis and fucking Clark, Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise, Mickey and Mallory, Charlie Starkweather driving through the Badlands of North Dakota. I want to inhabit the cliche so totally, we're not even conscious of it anymore. We've gone beyond ironic. We no longer have the distance to judge or sneer or feel like it's something outside. I want to eat cheeseburgers and run from the cops. I want dark desert highways, cool wind in my hair. I want to live there. I want to be the dream. But this, he smacked the table, this is where you and Remy come in. You don't believe shit. You two fucking hipsters don't believe in anything. You're genderqueer, post-racial, cosmopolitan, technocratic, millennial ironists. Cynical and smart and alienated. And the only thing you believe in is abortion, democratic socialism, and Instagram. Whatever dialogue you write, Susie, it won't be believing and it won't be living the dream. So that's one angle. The other's Remy, who's our floating eyeball. He's got the double consciousness and the double vision and the cyborg eye. He follows us in the car and the road, and he sees what he sees. I'll set up shots and make certain decisions, but Remy, Remy's the, Jim, Remy's with his finger on the trigger. Jim, you know you can't say that, Remy said. I'm fucking quoting Snoop Dogg, dog. Still not okay. Look, Jim said, losing his patience. There's a triangulation, like this. Here's me. He pulled a pen from his pocket and drew a dot, circling and circling until it took on weight somewhere in Canada. Here's you, he drew another out Oklahoma way. And here's Remy, he drew a third, deep South Atlanta, then inked hard lines connecting all three, a giant Illuminati blue triangle. This area in the middle, that's the project. That's America, contested space, a DMZ, fought over, emergent, reimagined, see? We're allies, we're co-conspirators, we're partners in crime, but we're also antagonists, competitors, each pulling for our vision of the strict constructionist dream. I mean... I expect us to be contrary because I expect we'll be sick of each other in an hour. But there will also be subterranean currents, a deeper agreement, a unified flow. Or you'll make one in the editing room, Susie said. She still hadn't signed a contract. She could slam her eye, walk out, and go back to Steve and Ridgewood and her failed novel about Carol Fugati. Jim leaned back. Sure, it's my project in the end, but for the trip, it's us, all three full partners. What's the point? Susie asked. How is this not some high art conceptualist retread of tired Tarantino bullshit? It's a question of method and intent. First of all, I'm not remediating the old myths into new myths. I'm not trying to solve the problems the myths have created or the problems the myths were created to solve. I want to explode the myths from inside. By re-inhabiting the foam space of the theme through the verfemden's effect of digital images warped, broken, and melted beyond even post-avant sensibilities, I mean to re-territorialize the American dream as a body without organs, then burn it on the altar of negation. The problem isn't specific content. The problem is the dialectic itself. Sure, she said. And you think breaking down narrative will have some kind of political effect? It's not hashtag fucking MoMA, he said, snarling. The point is total resistance at every level. So what, gadar by way of Trey Carton? Jim slammed his fist on the table, loud enough that people looked. She's great, he said to Remy. Isn't she great? She's pretty great, Remy said, smiling gently. His grin was earnest, but his gray-green eyes seemed to empty the room. Susie felt the urge to take his head against her chest and slowly unweave every bantu knot in his hair. You like cars, she asked him. Jeremy's smile shifted, the planes of his face realigning into an ambiguous, guarded half-state. Sure, tech's cool. I suppose I don't often think about cars as such. Driverless cars, perhaps, as a form of artificial intelligence, but not as physical machines. They seem a bit old-school. That's what I thought, she said, turning back to Jim. That's my other question, Gene, is who the fuck cares? You and me, were the last generation that maybe gives a shit about cars, and I don't even think we care that much. Him, she said, pointing at Remy, and all them, she said, gesturing at the neo-digitals slowly filling the room, their faces lit by handheld screens, and anybody born after Back to the Future 3, their idea of freedom is whether they can change their gender pronouns on yik-yak. Their whole idea of freedom is online, and even that's compromised by the internalized security state they've lived with basically their entire lives. So this whole mythic headspace you're talking about is really something only people even older than us have any solid connection with. And even for them, it's a ghost world. So this is what, an elegy? Some kind of MAGA nostalgia? I mean, it just doesn't seem especially relevant. Yik Yak shut down like five years ago, Remy said. Susie glared at him. Not the point. Granted, Jim said, that's what it looks like inside the bubble. We have our Uber rats and TaskRabbit and Grubhub meet space never more than five miles from a Momofuku, unless we're roughing it someplace like Taos. But is the same thing true for kids growing up in, I don't know, Alabama? Ohio? Any of the other states that start with vowels? Yes, we think we come from the future, but they're all sliding into something else. You know what it's like to be a teenager in Missouri? You know what freedom is to them? Can you honestly tell me it's not a car? A knot began to form inside her, thinking back. I don't know, she said, remembering saying goodbye to Oklahoma. But they don't buy art. Fuck that, he said. There's a place in America where space still matters. There's a place in this country where a gun and a car mean as much as the flag, where the idea of freedom has to do with bodies, not just tweets and apps. A place where they watch the fast and the furious and they mean it. But I'm not from there. I'm from Connecticut. So I want to go there, wherever there is, deep in the heart of it all, and make it make sense to me. I want to go where people believe the future means going back. I want to go where people believe in starting over. That's the point. I don't care who buys it. I have plenty of money. The only thing I care about is the truth. Susie laughed. Okay, she said, but I get to drive. Then they get out on the road um, and drive and drive. And there's some sexual tensions and other tensions. And they read some Walt Whitman and they film some scenes. They film something at the um, Memorial to the Oklahoma bombing. And somewhere out in the desert, Jim disappears And then things start to go sideways, the narrative shifts into uh, somewhere between things that are actually happening and uh, this kind of mythic space that Susie's exploring, that Jim was talking about. I'm gonna read a few sections from this middle section. It's called Roadhouse, the section's called Roadhouse Blues. I'm a wild drifter, see, a real cool customer living on the edge. I roll into town like I got nothing to lose, and that's when I see her in there, in there in the diner, popping bubblegum like she's breaking hearts. I say, baby, you and me, we go a long way together. And she says, honey lamb, you don't even know what kind of fire you're playing with. So I grab her and kiss her and show her my tattoo. She says she never could say no to a guy in a cowboy hat, so we take off into the sunset. Everything would have turned out fine, too, if it hadn't been for that state trooper. I didn't like the way he looked at Jane, the way her legs shone in his mirror shades, and then he started sticking his nose into questions like where I got the car. Jane calmed down after a while, and I pulled off and parked around the back of a cracker barrel where I could wash the blood out and nobody'd look too close. We'd gone off the rails, I could feel it, damned and doomed American outlaws, two kids living on the edge, dancing in the fire, crazy living, crazy full of life full of blood and sex magic and hard drugs. Damn that dead cop, though, because he got his revenge. His chest camera caught us tighter than any roadblock. Locked down, red-handed in the flicker, and they lit up the web coming after us with every drone they had. Ain't nobody love a cop killer no more, not since the globalists took over the deep state and poisoned everybody's minds with their blue pill propaganda. Thing is, people seem to want it. I mean, they take the pill. I reckon folks is just scared of real freedom and tired of the burden of individuality, the weight of having to choose a self, be a self, forge a self from the detritus of consumer society's endless maelstrom of bullshit. Anyways, from then on, it was a mad, bloody, octane-fueled blaze up to old Canada. We left everything we owned behind us, dirty socks dumped in rest stop trash cans, Old underwear left in the greasy sinks of two pump gas stations. Phone chargers spun like baby snakes curling in the Arizona sand. Condoms jammed in ATM money slots. Birth certificates folded into Chinese menus. Phones left on the tables of truck stop diners. Credit cards scattered like a shot cheater's poker deck. Watches melted in the dashboard sun. Skin and eyes and teeth shred in crackling folds. Buried in a dumpster behind a shell on Route 315. Everything but everything until all we had left was memories. And them we burned for fuel. I never thought we'd make it, but all I knew was that me and Jane was all we had. It was us against the world, our one and only true-born chance to start over. How? How much? How? As if life were a line you could cut into, an animal you could carve limb from limb, bones you could crack to get at the marrow inside. Is the word discontinuous or discreet, she wondered. Am I making that up? You can't separate out the things that go together. You can't cotton to the fact that time and space are the same space, the same feeling, that space and space and space are the same space. One time, one space, one thought, but we chop it all up. Two different thoughts at the same time differ neither in time nor space, so how do they differ? In content, form, in different strobing sectors of the cerebellum, So you will, in the end, say space, yes, space, different cells and chemical romances, deferring unification. This light, words careening inside a car, false, holding two opposed notions, but how? Do I think them differently? What if they're not thoughts at all, but only afterimages of things that already happened, rationalizations of biorhythm? She remembered Jim's aggressive, fearful eyes, the twitch in his lip, She pictured him somewhere out there by the side of the road, standing on the shoulder, thumb out, going where? Gone and where? Why? Some kind of ploy? Is he going to call them up and tell them come get him? Remy seemed to think it was four-dimensional chess. He refused to believe Jim had gone plumb loco and lit out for the hills, the dark in between, the tarp under the bridge. But that, Susie held, was exactly what Jim wanted. No, in fact, this was not the time for facts. Things happen, and they flash across your brain, leaving images that form as words. Words happen, leaving images that flash across your brain more words. She was dreaming all of it. A little story about Jack and Jane and Jesse. An epic nightmare fantasy of the Donald and Taylor Swift and Call Me Caitlin. Where did MS-13 fit in and Kim Jong-un? She was dreaming Coca Pelli and Bonnie and Clyde. She was dreaming Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fregatti and how they drove all the way out until the cops got them, and why does she do that? How? Gone and where? Dreaming different people, her old agent, Anna, her horse-riding friend from Oklahoma named Grace, her mother, America, the children she might have had, the children she'd aborted, Jack and Jane, puppets dancing, playing out scenarios on the inner wall of her mind and shadows cast by the false light of consciousness because that's what Susie does, has always done. She doesn't take reality as it comes, but pumps it through a machine in her head that spits out It spits it out as stories she can control. Stories that make some kind of sense. Stories that hold at a distance the horror of being trapped in a box made of words. Nightmare mind. Look, Ma. No hands. She wishes she could break the machine. Stop it from from making stories. Stop it from always starting over. She wishes she could lie on the floor of the world and stare up at the stars. A word comes in, goes out. Gone and where? Nowhere. They he when float stone words come in and out but nothing ties them together like stars unconstellated each one shimmering distant isolate bright jack and jane had been driving all night when the bricks fell cascading the bricks didn't fall go back and read it again skip the next sentence we are caught in nets of envy The back seat full of crumpled wax, too lazy to throw a gray pill of cigarette ash arcing under the windshield like a ballerina. Wait for it. Something happens. It always does. They watch hotel TV all night. They watch paintings of wildlife, caribou, acrylic. They watch one another, blue light, glowed skin, blood, seething in static horizontals, eyeball tire tracks. They met the man who wrote the algorithm for the French and Indian War. They met a man who played dead. They wrenched figures on a table reenacting the death of John Henry, still but for the machine. Blades whispering, gravel crunches underfoot. Read gravel crunch foot. Underfoot? Read shadows. The ice clatters in the ice machine. The whole system lurches and pixels grind. It's nice there's an ice machine, also a Coke machine and a snack machine, with honey buns, Twizzlers, and chili cheese Fritos everywhere, the comforts of home. Now he remembers the gravel underfoot, old Jack, and it brings back the taste of dust and the crisp, smoky dusks of autumn, fields burning. It brings black. It brings back and blows down, water in all its forms, rising, breathe, breathe in, I can't breathe. Jack and Jane fold like matches, struck over the back of the cover, and Mom puts the kettle on, Dad plays Imagine in loafers, cars everywhere drip light down blackening walls, more water, nets. That's like highways, like water. They met a man who taught them to code. The highways are red like we know and know and start over. Cars everywhere drip light down gray walls. Ashen walls, monochrome walls, mercurochrome walls, walls the color of Holocaust pictures, faded walls, deliberately distressed walls, claw hammered to look older than they are, the light sliding again and again and one more time and skits blob and reel, pooling in a slick on the floor leaking down the street, filling our kitchens with water. The highways are red, are blazing. No, there are no highways, only the sea, the map. He erases his name and writes it again. I can't breathe. Jane stands over Jack and lays a cold brick on his chest. He looks at her, her fingers still. She pushes down and he breathes in, his ribs lifting, filling his cage with air, and she pushes harder. His heart beats, she can feel it in her fingertips, rough with red grit dust. She straddles him and leans, both palms against the stone, until he can't inhale any deeper. He holds his breath, looking into her eyes as his sight grows dim. He exhales. His chest sinks, and with it the brick in through the skin, blood-folding bone around rock. Outside a horn sounds, inside breathing. The highways are black like a line across the sky, the sea, no zero. You ask, at a certain point, what it's all about. La Iglesia de la Virgen de los Remedios, the white cross in the mountain clearing between pines green and dark, The crashed car down the road. They ran on the flat as long as they could till the rim gave out and they ditched. Jane pulled herself from the car, bleeding in the side from where they got her and started limping, gone heavy in her hand, looking back over her shoulder, sunglasses glinting in the high mountain blaze. They'd stopped the last one, but it was only a matter of time. Jesse dead in the back, plugged in the chest and He didn't last long. Jack, meanwhile, shirt wrapped around his head to stanch the blood, is mumbling, Jane, Jane, as he pushes open the door and falls, legs collapsing. It's getting dark now for Jack. The sun doesn't seem to work like it used to. Jane, he gasps, face in the needles, trying to push himself up with his knees. Gotta give him credit for trying. Jane legs it up the road, each step a jab in her side. Liver, uterus, stomach... Or maybe she's lucky and the bullet went right through. Either way, it's tearing her insides up and she needs help. She knows that much. Fuck pain. Up ahead, she sees a church. The church with the huge white cross behind it and the clearing, the smaller cross in the gravel. Read, gravel, crunch, foot. Had to end somewhere. There's no way this crazy spree could have lasted forever. And did we even really want to make it to Canada? Did we even think we could do that? She thought back on the ride, the first bold revolt, the thrill when she crossed the threshold and shouted, this is the resistance, the excitement she felt the first time she pointed her gun at someone, the shudder of sexual pleasure when it went off, the grace of falling bodies, the beauty of a dead cop. But everything comes to an end, and that was was the point anyway. A new beginning needed an end to start over, burn, burn, never fade away. She can hear the sirens, cruisers on the way up the dusty track. Only a matter of time. Her tank top soaked with blood and sweat now, she'd never realized what hard work it was to die. She felt her back pocket for extra mags, three and nine rounds each meant 27 plus the five or six in the gun against however many cops, pistols, shotguns, homeland, SWAT, ATF, DEA, and the FBI. You think maybe they brought the National Guard out? For little old me? A puff of dust down the mountain at the turn. She can see only the black MRAP in front with the water cannon cupola. Maybe they'll stop at the car and think that's it. Except there's an APB for one man and two women. Patriarchal, sexist, cishet, fox, armed and dangerous. This was it. This was really it. She threw herself against the door of the church and slammed it open. Up near the altar, a young priest looked at her, his face calm even as she raised her pistol. "'Sitting before him, her back to the door, "'a huddled pile of bones and white hair "'draped in a yavapai poncho, "'a woman so old she might have seen Cortez burn his ships. "'Padre,' Jane rasped, "'I need a little remedios.' "'He looked at her silhouetted against the brightness outside, "'hearing the sirens down the mountain, "'eyes on the glint of pistol weaving in the doorway. "'Come in,' he said, "'patting Quintana Juanita Alonso Varga y Lopez's pretty on top's shoulders, shoulder "'and leaving her sitting in the pew.' I'll return, Tia, he whispered to the old woman as he moved toward the door. Jane stepped in and closed the door behind her and leaned against it. She stood slack for a moment, her gun hand falling to her side and her head drooping, eyes losing focus. She started to slide down the door, then with a grunt and gritted teeth stood and stumbled toward the priest. She growled, pulling herself together, breathing hard through her nose. He showed her the palms of his hands, trying to calm her. You're hurt very bad. The siren's louder now, nearly on them. I can help you. Just put down the gun. There any other way out of this place? No, Miha. You go out the same way you come in. Mira, Iha, I can help. Just put down the. Only way you can help me now, Padre, is over my dead body. You and the old woman better find some cover. This is bound to get messy. Sirens blaring now. Scatter of gravel. The sky turned to blood. This is a place of God, Miha. He said almost begging. It ought to do then. She pushed past him, past him, and up the altar, with the Jesus of the Mount on one side and Mary of the Immaculate Heart on the other, and the suffering Christ himself hanging emaciated from his fierce crucifix between. It was a nice stone altar, very old school, almost heathen, and she could bend on one knee behind it and plug away all day as safe as if she were sitting in a bunker. She let herself down slow, her bloody right hand smearing the stone, then took up a supported stance on one knee, eyeing the doorway. Miha, please, the priest said, let me help. I want to help yourself the fuck out of the way, padre,' she said, sighting down the barrel. "'Just then the door swung open and one cop came in low, "'another high, armored and helmeted with carbines. "'The one going low had enough time to say there "'before Jane put two in the crotch of the big, beefy one standing up "'just under his vest plate. "'Then, exhaling slow, she blew out the knee of the crouching one. "'The door erupted in splinters and fire, "'and the priest jerked and spun, caught in a swarm of lead. "'You're surrounded,' came the voice over the bullhorn, there's only two ways you come out of there, Susie, and handcuffs are in a bag. It's up to you. You come out now with your hands up. We might even get you to a hospital. My name's not fucking Susie, she screamed, then winced at the pain in her side. This is your last chance, the bullhorn, the bullhorn barked. Maybe that's it then, a bad end to a bad ride. If There's no point to anything anyway. You might as well go down blazing. Come get some, you Trump-loving bitches, she shouted, the screen going dark. Then things, uh, get weirder. Um, <laughs> uh, are there any fans of the musical Oklahoma in, out here? A couple, a few. So, you know, about, about halfway, two thirds of the way through that musical, um, there's a, this dream ballet that it's this totally strange, like Freudian, uh, s- uh sexual drama, um, In dance form um, that kind of reprises and and transforms many of the themes and things going and and plots going on in in the play and something similar happens in this book um, with the third section uh, which is titled King King of the Road Uh, it sort of enters into into this other imaginary space uh, more more sort of collective unconscious than then personal unconscious, uh, sort of spinning together uh, some of the language in, in the environment uh, that, we, that we live in now, stuff from Twitter and, um, and things like that, um, to kind of, to tell a kind of lyrical version of, uh, of some of the things going on in here. So I'm just going to read just a little bit of this. Inauguration Day. Remember the Russian orgy at Kanye's house? That's where they filmed the piss tapes. Everybody was there. Bill, Rihanna, R. Kelly, Zuckerberg, Caitlin, Taylor, even Nancy Pelosi. Intercontinental ballistics streaking into the kimchi sea, writhing with transitioning aces and 15,000 black Eurasian cyborg incel entrepreneurs of the rainbow llama corn who were and did a little bit of everything in the new gig economy. Back in the day, it was sort of like, why not? Colluding with the enemy seemed hot, and with only 60 harvests left, you might as well put Pepe in Dior overalls and call it even. And he did a great job to winning bigly, except for the whole Confederate monument debacle. Real talk. The collapse of 2023 was a long way off yet, and we'd all agreed doomscaping wasn't productive. Hashtag resist, hashtag resistance, hashtag the resistance, hashtag indivisible, hashtag MAGA, hashtag USA, hashtag hope. all singing. Oh, what a beautiful day. Men in tiger stripe and blue-fringed Marnie coats pulled the presidential surrey, and everybody waved for shouts. Taylor Swift sang to the internet. Jack and Jane waved. Charlie and Carol and all them clone robots, too, drinking La Marca Prosecco. The reporter, believing those who admired him, wrote a hashtag hot take for the new soul cycle. Zuckerberg, meanwhile, stood behind the curtain, staring straight ahead, holding a bottle of life water. For a moment, Trump stopped. His dream of the South actualized and looked up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. Then he started again, sea-bound on tiny feet, which years later became a legend. They say he donated everything to cage kids, then built 700-foot-tall sculptures in all the rivers. Think of it. The kids, a plantation, no bell, no planter even, all dazzled and led. Clone Charlie and Carol stood watching the Donald's self-consciously flagrant sunset claims and what he thought she called fact. His romancing Kanye West's milkshake duck evoked a nostalgic portrayal of the pre-revo- pre-revolutionary White House that no doubt will keep performing miracles for those senior citizens old enough to understand the link between Taylor Swift getting the Fed out of our pants and the Facebook-Google Whole Foods plot. That the rescuer of the Republic had to plunge the rift in an Etro dress and Jimmy Choo's is a fact we are to reckon with, because IRL, the situation was zippity-doo-dah. What happened was... Young girls found each other and assured gentlemen of their maritime prospects, older women curtsied to the employment situation, and food and drink items were sent to DACA dreamers. Trump's influence was literally pork and potatoes and onions, its intoxicating effect on the 1% eloquently foretold. Dear reader, dump your prestige cli-fi podcasts. They aren't the French Revolution twisting up the mountains from Mississippi to Bakersfield, Our nation's entire infrastructure is a bright and terrible desert, and we ain't doing nothing about it. So into rich California, Donald Trump flows. Route 66 is the path of contempt. He said as much. He said, if we're going to 2044, this year marks the eight ball. My America, you have to invest in Trump Hotel Collective Gems. Walking the earth, turning its treasures, he flipped our way of death into a delicious, soapy narrative where you're always wondering what happens next. That's all of that that I'm going to inflict on you. Uh, In the final section, we return to Susie. We come back to Susie, who's headed west again uh, sometime later, this time by herself, uh, herself and her little dog, her Jack Russell Terrier Abelard. And she's working on her um, novel about Charlie Starkweather and Carol Fugati. They're these famous sort of serial killers from the 50s valorized as kind of outlaws um, and inspiration for things from like uh, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album to uh, um, the Terrence Malick film Badlands. Um, So anyway, she's writing, writing that from, from Carol's point of view, but we're here with, with Susie and Abelard. Abelard looked up and she absentmindedly fed him another bit of hot dog thinking about these last few days, years, this life, Jim and Remy and Jim's fierce dream and crazy escape, rupture, evasion, and how she'd never lost the sense she had of something mysterious coming to life when he'd stood there in the bar and opened his map across the table, giving them the nation at a glance, its secrets and truths plotted across the grid in blue rivers and lines of rising peaks, flyover junctions and suburbanized metropoles, nowheres and dreamlands, Hints scrawled and crazed graffiti, and how at the same time the map meant it was there. There it was, given and pre-owned, already been chewed, and even for all that space, there was a way you couldn't go anywhere anymore, somehow, where they weren't already looking. It had all been fenced off. And what this had to do with Carol Fugati and Charlie Starkweather with guns and the Sinaloan War and Whitman and Trump and Oklahoma City, how somehow it all meant something she couldn't quite grasp, couldn't quite put her finger on, Something big and important and dying, maybe already dead, and how her chest seemed to open at the pain of the past and the promise of tomorrow, the clear impossible anything rising in the sky, the great big lie she still wanted to believe in, her lover, America, the road, that's why typing at the hotel the next night at the edge of the edge of the mountains, almost there now, that's why this now, this screen, that's why she exists, why she thinks and breathes and talks, why she's heading across the country, writing heading across the country, why there's a second life, why another life, why you start with the word, why the word was, why the word was in the beginning, why you start over. That's why she types what happened was, but no, that's not right, start over. What happened was, how it all started was like this. It started out with Charlie and I, start over. Charlie and me, start over. What happened was that we were driving out across Wyoming. We were, we was, we was driving across somewheres. What happened was we was driving out across the country somewheres in Wyoming, start over what happened was we was on a lonely stretch of road somewheres in Wyoming and it was the first time I'd ever seen the mountains ever, all dark and high against the edge of the prairie and I thought, how we got to go over them? There ain't no way, and I felt sad and angry because we know they was after us. We heard all about us on the radio. Start over, do it again. What happened was we was on a lonely stretch of road somewheres in Wyoming and it was the first time I'd seed the mountains ever, all dark and high against the edge of the prairie and I thought how we got to go over them there ain't no way I thought. And I sad and angry because I know they's after us. We heard all about us on the radio. And Charlie says they know what kind of car we had. And he said they's looking for us for sure now. So he stops at this car. I think it's a Buick just out on the road. And Charlie gets out and walks up like a big sheriff and all that like he always done. And I sees him talking to the man in the car, but he won't open the window. So Charlie comes back and he gets the 22 and takes it and shoots in the window and shoots the man again. Must have been 10 times. I reckon he just went crazy. I thought he'd just gone crazy and got all scared because of last night when he made me do it with him when I didn't want to. So I thought, what if he tries something now and he's all crazy? That's why I got out of the car when that man came by. First, there's the one man who drove by and turned around and come back, and I thought, Charlie, you better shoot him, too. And he gets out of the car and walks up, and Charlie points a gun at him, and the man grabs it, and they start wrestling. Then the deputy comes up in his car, and I run up to him and says, take me to the police. And he says, get in. So I did. Then I told him how Charlie killed a man there, and he asked me who that is, and I just looked at him funny and said, that there is Charlie Starkweather. I remember at the beginning when he told me he killed Bob Culvert. He said some others done it, but I know right away he was the one because even if he was scared, he couldn't help but make a little grin like he'd done something bad. And he took me and we drove around town and I made him tell me all about it. How he said he walked right in with his shotgun and said, you just put the money in the bag right there. And then he made Bob drive him out by Bloody Mary's where he said he was going to leave him tied up. But Bob tried to hit him and grab his gun, so we just shot him, bang, like that. He said it was awful cold and dark, it'd be in December and all, and nighttime, and I asked him, what's it feel like killing a man? And he says it feels good, real good, like it's the first rat thing i ever done. And I says, the second right thing, you dog, and gives him a kiss on his cheek. And then we parked, and he kissed me up some, and he asked me, you want to touch the gun? And I say yes, and he takes it out from under the seat, and I look at it and thought, that's how you kill a man right there, with some black metal, just a piece of the world, like a tool or a hammer. And that's how Charlie done Bob Culvert. He just took him out and shot him like a dog. When Charlie dropped me off at home, my ma come at me as soon as I was back saying, where you been with that Charlie Starkweather? And I don't know what you two do driving around in his car, but it ain't right and you better watch out. Nagging on me and making it sound like me and Charlie was the worst sinners in all Nebraska. Like there weren't a hundred other kids running around doing worse than us. And I wanted to tell her, you don't even know what we're doing, you old hag. You don't even know what we do. I wanted to tell her, Charlie just killed a man you dried up nasty witch. what you think of that? How about we kill you? I didn't say it, of course. I wanted to, and then later on we did. Charlie shot her in her stupid, pinched-up old face, but she wasn't dead yet, so then he smashed in her head with his rifle. That was later on, though, and I never told anyone, nor will I ever, but I don't mind saying now, even for all the years I spent at York, which weren't so bad once you got used to it, I'm glad he'd done it. Glad he went and shot her, because she was a mean old nasty hag who needed somebody to shoot her five or ten times even. It ain't so as you could shoot her enough to be done with her what she needed done to her. And he killed Marion, too, and he had it coming, that son of bitch, and I'll tell you about that when I comes to it, but that day, I mean to say, after Charlie told me he'd done killed Bob Culvert, I remember coming in the parlor room, and Mar- Marion's watching TV and fixing it some business, one of his projects like he was always working on, this thingamajig he had all apart with a screwdriver and was trying to fix it, doing tiny little work with his big old hands, like one of them giants from a story trying to make something normal size. And I stood in the door looking at him and Betty Jean on the floor, and the man on the TV was talking about how Russian Sputnik falled right out of the sky into the Pacific Ocean. And he says how folks in California saw it fall the other night and thought it were a UFO like in the movies, but it weren't. It were just them Russians spreading their communist lies. I thought about that and how it seemed real beautiful to me because I've seen shooting stars before, And to watch it burn and slide across the sky like a smeary trail of golden red falling from space like the bloody tears of heaven must have been beautiful, commie or not. It don't matter if it were Chinese or if it were really a UFO like they thought. It must have been glorious. You don't get to see something like that all the time in a life. Life ain't such a long thing and it ain't so full of beauty neither. It's mostly dumb bossy people yelling at you in cold winters and things you thought would happen that turn out wrong. But if you get something beautiful like that, you ought to hang on to it gonna stop there. Yeah, so I guess we we got some time for if everyone's still awake, uh, some time for, for questions or comments, uh, thoughts. Yeah. First off, does your shirt say Dornell
1: right? It does. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Yes. Any particular reason you made
0: him from Connecticut? Um, no, I uh, not really. I mean, I've known some people from Connecticut, but um, and also I found out uh, a couple of years ago. I got on ancestry.com and and found out that um, uh, I that the Scranton family goes. It was actually founded a town in Connecticut, so oh. there's some way in which I I go back to Connecticut. as one side of my family goes back to Connecticut, so. Okay. Yeah, are, do you have a, uh, I, a... Are you a Connecticutian? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. you could say that. It's a fine place. Yeah. yeah, sure. I'm, no beef with Connecticut. Okay. <laughs> okay. What, oh, no? I don't want to preclude any emerging.
1: You made me want to see Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a, it's, it's a cool place. It's, how, it, the I movie, the, the, the musical. Yeah, yeah, movie. right, right. No, it's it's an amazing uh, American masterpiece. It's really incredible. Uh, yeah, it's you think it's one way, but then you actually go watch it, and it is corny and cheesy and all the things that you think it is. But there's also all this other stuff going on about um, the violence at the heart of the nation state and and how that works and racial exclusion and it's um, there's a. What's the guy? Um, there's recently a, a, a new version, sort of an update, uh, or a new staging of Oklahoma that was Daniel Fish, I think, was the guy who, who put it together, um, which has been touring, which is really, really interesting to see, too. But the, even, even looking at the, uh, the, the old movie is really um, quite interesting. Oh, that opens it up, Oklahoma. Uh, yeah, back there, and then we'll work our way forward. I encourage people to check out that new Oklahoma because yeah. it is very gender bending. Yeah. There's two main couples in Oklahoma, right? And I can't remember Curly and whatever the woman's name is. Yeah. And the other couple. But
1: they're both um, same sex
0: couples. So Curly oh, was yeah. the girlfriend. Okay. the two are men. And they really try to address all that racial stuff. And yeah. every single relationship in that is different than the original play. All the songs are the same, right? I dialects the same. It's, but it's it's really excellent. <laughs> the dream sequence, you know, that you mentioned, um, sort of exaggerates all that. Yeah. If anyone gets a chance to see that play, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'll second that. Yeah, yeah. And then Going to ask on your, uh, the writing process.
1: Yeah. What was it like? What is the rhythm? I'm trying to get inspired myself, so I'm just.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, with a sort of, there were different, different initial processes for different, different sections. Um, some of the scenes and some of the bits were were um, more intentionally constructed at the initial stage, and others, um, you know, were sort of. I would try to get myself into a, a voice or a headspace, and then let it run, um, you know. But then, then fundamentally, I mean, the process there's there's generating the material, um, you know, which which can, you know, I mean, there's different approaches to that, um, and I can talk about that more if you want. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day, sort of, I just kept going back over and over it, reading it out loud to myself. Again and again to sort of get the language right, um, and and give it a um, get the sound right was was essential. Yeah. So
1: like overall, like how from start to finish, what would
0: you say? How long it took? How long it took? Um, early draft. early drafts of this book uh, I did in like two thousand eight. Um, you know, and then other parts sort of came came very late. Uh, much closer to, to publication date, even after, you know, in like 2016, 17, 18, yeah, so, a long time. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: So I'm curious about your, your writing too, just in your, your work, um, your process. As a the, yeah. Uh, and I, I read your book, <coughs> Morning's Guy, and the Anthropocene Yeah. Um, and loved it. Oh, thanks. And, um, I hadn't kept up with the other things you've written, so I'm, I'm and I'm curious about your switch uh, from nonfiction to fiction. Yeah. And if that's um, and I haven't looked at the dates on the other books, but have you gone back and forth, or are you switching? Like, have you have you written some nonfiction now, and, and you're just uh, yeah? And then you said you did the draft like back in 2008. Right. So I'm just yeah. Curious about all of that, the fiction versus yeah. nonfiction
0: kind of. Yeah. You know, uh well i i started out uh thinking of myself as a novelist and and wanting uh i guess first a poet and then novelist uh and and wanting to uh pursue that um and uh for example war porn um was like my you know there there were several bad novels that no one will ever see before i wrote war porn um um, and I was I was trying to find a publish find a home for that when um, I started writing more nonfiction. I was working on a PhD. I had been writing like some memoir stuff about being a veteran and about the Iraq War, um, and uh, somewhere in there wrote the essay "Learning How to Die in the Anthropocene." That was the seed for for that first book, and so. Um, The nonfiction sort of has emerged out of um, more out of things people want me to write (laughs) (laughs) um, and opportunities and like things to to talk about, you know, uh, with audiences. Um, But I think my my first passion, I don't know if it if it remains my my core passion, but like my first passion was to to work in the form of the novel. Um, And so that's something I've I continue to to work on, and then the nonfiction stuff um, I love doing as well. But it's been um, it sort of emerged out of that, yeah, yeah.
1: I had the same question pretty much about the process because I loved learning things interesting also. Yeah. Um, and one thing thanks. that I enjoyed about it was not only was the information really compelling, but, yeah, um, your voice was so compelling. Enough. Oh, thanks. So
0: uh, the inverse, I think, is
1: true here in your novel,
0: because not only is it beautiful written, but it's, like, it's so socially relevant. Ah, uh, yeah, thanks. The, like, the novel. Yeah, yeah. I I sort of um, for better or for worse, uh, when I when I'm working in fiction, uh, I I come at it thinking about um, structure and style first of all. That's, for me, the, the content of the work is in its form, not just in the what ha- the plot or what happens or what people say or whatever. Um, and then I'm able to, you know, I, I've discovered or, like, found for myself a lot of different little techniques and things I can do that then I take to my nonfiction where... My intent, my first intent, is to communicate clearly with the reader, right? I want I want what I say to be clear and and accurate and compelling. And then then the question is, what kind of structure can I can I use to make sure that that happens? Um, which is not to say that uh, style is not important when I when I write my nonfiction, um, but it's not preeminent. It's sort of in in Tension with the need to to be clear and the need to try to um, create an easier easier journey for the reader to to get the information, um, yeah. Whereas with the with with novels, the I think the experience is intended to be somewhat um, challenging in certain ways because my concern with fiction is in is. In part with the ways that the ways that we're wrapped up in narrative, and how we can sort of find find a way out. Yeah.
1: If uh, someone were to turn this into a film, yeah, who would you have to? You who, your who would
0: I have do it? Someone turn it into a film? Um, I don't I don't have any idea. Um. I really like uh, the director, what's the guy, his name's Hero something, he's done, he's been doing a lot of uh, the episodes of Atlanta, um, the Don, Donald Glover show, um, I really love his visual style, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, it makes me think of, like, this is my, you know, I guess, somewhat old school references, it's like, it's kind of like Jim Jarmusch, but with like a surreal Lynchian twist to it. Um, so I, I think that would be, he'd, he'd be great. Yeah.
1: It's funny you should mention Jarmusch, because I was thinking a
0: Yeah, 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 v- very much an influence.
1: Okay. Uh, in the first section, the character, I think again, it's the video character is talking about yeah. trying to transcend irony. Yeah. Um, and I, I sort of apologize for the question, because, I mean, obviously it's not like a yes or no question, but did you have any kind of conscious sense that you were sort of setting that as a goal for yourself?
0: Um, yeah, It's so that's not... Yeah, you're right, that's not a yes or no question, right? But um, so... Um, My, I guess the what I would say is that part of my intention was to, as as much as I could, um, put into productive tension um, a kind of naive commitment to to these narratives of this outlaw narratives and these road narratives and these outlaw archetypes, uh, so central to. Um, the American mythos, right, um, with um, the inescapable awareness of their status as um, corrupt uh, and and even maybe evil, violent myths, uh, right, and so um, you know, again, and that that goes to the question of sort of like trying to 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 think of the novel in terms of structure so that it's not um, it's not one thing but hopefully what's what's generative and interesting about the novel emerges out of um, these different worlds and particularly like different language worlds sort of jammed into juxtaposition yeah yeah thanks thank
1: you yeah sign some
0: books yeah i will happily sign any books mine or or other people's if you want me to um i guess i'll set up just uh here or whatever yeah okay so once again but so thank you all for coming um thanks city lights and thanks to peter um i always say buy buy a book if not one of mine uh somebody's this is a you know, independent bookstore and, and an institution, and it needs, it needs your support to keep it going. So buy, buy something. All right. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights bookstore and publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.